Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Anti-union sentiment is really powerful. It can be pretty subtle, but pervasive. And it can give this idea that protections cause a lack of productivity. And that's where I... I like to step in and and ask people what what their real concern is. So if you're worried that people are taking too many breaks, maybe look at why. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Rodney Evans, and I'm joined by my co-host, Aaron Dignan. Hello, hello. We are also joined today by Tanisi Boran, a member of The Ready. Tanisi, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the intersection between unions, labor organizing, and the future of work. But before we do all of that, we need to check in. We have to check in. And it's going to be a very special check-in round because it is Tanisi's birthday. It's so exciting. Our colleague, Tanisi, agreed to spend part of her birthday recording this dumb podcast with us, even though (laughs) it's going to be amazing. But, you know, Tanisi probably has better things to do. Regardless, the check-in question for today is, what is one of your most beloved birthday traditions for your own birthday? Mm. And we will start with the birthday person, Tanisi. (laughs) Oh, thank you. One of my most beloved traditions over the last few years, since I moved away from my family, is FaceTiming with with my family when I can, usually my grandma, and just being able to see everybody and be walked around the house on my birthday is really nice. Nice. Aaron, what about you? The Lady Dignan has for many years procured for me from a New York bakery miniature black and white cookies on my birthday that come in a (laughs) box and they go right in the freezer and they come out one at a time and it's like an all week thing. So, you know, if you ever see me looking a little doughy, it's usually the birthday that's to blame (laughs) and they are unreal. Nice. Mine is also food related. It's not an every single year thing. There is a little bit of an element of convenience to this, but certainly when we lived in New York City, For reasons that were initially coincidental and then became tradition, we spent a lot of my birthdays at German restaurants. And I have, you know, a lot of like German lineage. So I always sort of joke that, you know, my my blood is half Spetzel. But it became (laughs) a thing where on my birthday, I would drink beer and eat a giant plate of Spetzel, which I maintain is the most perfect of the carbohydrates. Love it. It's so good. So good. Okay, so today's topic is 
all about unions and the future of work. We're very excited to dig into this with you, Tanisi. And we'd like to just start by talking about for each of us, when we say union, what springs to mind? What comes up when we think about this stuff and talk about this stuff? And Tanisi, we'll start with you because you're probably the smartest on it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, so when I think of unions, just my initial reaction is thinking of a bunch of people getting together who all care about each other, who care about making their place of work, the place that they spend a lot of their time better. So moving from that individual mindset to a collective mindset. I very admittedly have worked in and around very few unionized environments, but I did Mm. grow up in the Northeast in the 80s. So I remember there being a lot of discussion of the power that the unions held in and around the five boroughs. And so I have actually a lot of association with unions that's very rooted in this one small slice of unions that were frequently striking and, and, you know, had had connections to other kinds of organizations. And were sort of like, you know, they were they were pretty pretty, what's the word I'm looking for? Like mythological? Is that a word? <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. it is. Yeah. Like there was a lot of mythology around unions right. where I grew up at that particular time. And so even though now I know more about the collective nature of them and the purpose that they serve, I still sort of have this connection to how much unions were like in the news and very, very present yeah. at that time. It's funny. Both of you went right to the something a little bit more present or recent. When I think of unions, my first thought is like a sepia toned photograph. Really? You know, it's, oh yeah. Cause I go back to like, what were the factory conditions that mm. gave rise to the movement of unions? Like what caused us to even need it or have it at least in a modern corporate history. And so I, that's where my mind first goes is to that, that turning period, you know, early 1900s kind of moment. And then maybe later in the forties and fifties. So I go back to history, but then I jump from there to, well, what does it mean to organize today? And what are we organizing for? Yeah. So let's get into that. So Tanisi, you have both personal and professional connections to unions and to workers' rights organizations. Could you just tell us and our listeners how you made your way into that world and how labor organizing and labor history was really introduced to you? Yeah, I started to get interested in labor organizing way before I thought particularly about unions. I was really involved with food justice and migrant worker rights organizations. So it was farm workers and migrant workers that started me thinking about what does it mean to have rights in the workplace? So I owe a lot of my interest to agricultural labors that I was able to interact with both in my community work and through my academic research. And through that, I started to get more involved in what organized work looks like and what does it look like to be able to make decisions and to design a system that serves the workers and gives them the power to create a safe and just and equitable environment. Um, And that led me to looking into organizations and jobs that had a connection to labor organizing and supported mm. those values. And I was able to join a union first while working in a cafe as a student. And that was a really great introduction to that level of organizing and being able to learn from people who were 
on the ground and had been doing this work for 30 years or had been doing it for a year and were really fresh and trying to bring a new perspective into it. And of course, more recently, today is not just your birthday, but also your <laughs> anniversary. one year yes. with the ready. Yeah. yeah, You have moved in the direction of, of what we do and talk about here. Mm-hmm. So how, how do you make that transition or what drove that or, or got you thinking in those terms? Yeah, I think the the common thread that I see in, I guess, in my trajectory towards the ready um, and in my journey of work has been that I've always been interested in systems change and in understanding and evolving systems to really serve people rather than be solely for profit. And Through labor organizing, there's a lot of times where you're building relationships, you're trying to facilitate change in different ways. And that led me to just more opportunities where it was more systems level thinking rather than uh, one-off organizing. So the key area for me is that I was always able to kind of take a step back and say, what's actually causing the tension in this system? It's not just a bad boss. It's not a tense work environment. There's actually something behind this. Someone designed this system and maybe we can design something better. Mm. Do you feel like you put down unions or labor organizing in order to pick up systems design? Or do you feel like there are connective tissue between what the ready does in the future of workspace and what unions and labor organizing are trying to do? Like, how do you see those as either common threads or was this more of an evolution? Yeah, I think, you know, while practically I'm not as connected to unions and labor organizing as I once was, the values and a lot of the practices are shared. And the the thing that I've realized over the last year at the ready, that's like the strongest but simplest common thread between unions and what we do here in in the ready and in future of workspaces is that people are really centered and Mm. the people that are doing the work should be the ones making the decisions. So while on the outside, it may look really different or maybe the paths people take to get there, the principles share a lot of commonality that I've been able to see way more, you know, getting into the work. Like that's whether you're in labor organizing or you're doing what we do until you're really practicing, it can be hard to see what's in common. Mm. I would love to hear a little bit more about the practices that you see as overlapping? Because I really mm-hmm. have no insight into into that. Like I, I have no sense of where that commonality lies. So I'm curious from your perspective, you know, where is it basically the same? Yeah. So some of the things I see most clearly are when I think back to an experience I had as a manager of an organization. So I was sitting on the other side of the table negotiating a first contract or first agreement. So the organization had never been unionized before. And we were trying to create a new agreement together. We didn't have the practice of how to make decisions together. Right. We didn't Mm -hmm. understand how to govern agreements properly or to define authority. So there were a lot of hurdles that we were jumping over as the employer and the employees. 
And I can imagine if we had known, if we'd been exposed to the practices that the ready does around IDM or how to write a good agreement, how to do an experiment, a lot of what we were deciding would have felt a lot less tense and a lot less scary if we had some experience, if we had some tools to ground us in those things before we were sitting across from each other with our lawyers on either side. (laughs) That's always been my impression too, is that, and this may be an incorrect impression for certain labor organizations or certain types of unions, but the sense was there's a lot of clarity about the fact that we want to do collective bargaining and we want to represent a different set of needs and priorities but I hadn't necessarily had the impression that within the union space, there were a lot of super progressive ways of coming to agreement or ways of making a decision or ways of representing those interests rather than just basically a lot of voting and a lot of representation and a lot of legal argument. Is that Mm -hmm. your sense as well? Or have you seen innovation on that side of the aisle? Yeah, that was my experience at the beginning of interacting with unions, being a member of unions. By the time I was on the employer side, I was reading a lot about self-management and the future of work already. So I had an idea that there was something possible, but I hadn't yet experienced it myself. And we decided as, as the employer to bring a really progressive collective agreement forward on our side. And that was a shock to the union, to our employees. And <laughs> <laughs> we found that after a few first days of tense negotiations, we all sat down and kind of said, well, what do we want? What do we want our workplace to look like? You know, I was negotiating with people that were my direct reports. We were interacting on the days that we were not negotiating. So we wanted to feel good about each other when we left that rented uh, conference room and went back to the office. So we did look at other unions. We, We had been looking at collective agreements that were more towards the old ways of working and more traditional office setups. Our organization was a lot more flexible and people had to be a lot more adaptive in their work. So we were really happy to find uh, locals, different union organizations that were innovative and progressive and focused on things like what does a really great equity and inclusion policy look like? What does parental Mm -hmm. leave look like? So those were areas that we really focused on But the areas that I found to be a struggle when I was on either side of the table of what does it look like when we're back together? What does the human interaction look like? This is not the same as being on a factory floor, you know, in the industries I was in, which were education, nonprofits, and the federal government. What does it look like to ask for permission or to grant authority in in a workplace that may change a lot. And especially now when people are working from home or doing, you know, doing a hybrid work environment, who defines that, who makes those decisions on the day to day. And that's a space where I see a lot of innovation could happen in these collective agreements that have to last, you know, two to five years, but that doesn't reflect the current state of work anymore. We have to be more adaptive. 
So there definitely are organizers that understand this and are responding and workers are responding to it. So I think looking at the more progressive unions is a good signal as to where there's commonality or where, you know, somewhere, someone like us at the ready could, could assist to make those negotiations or ways of working after the collective agreement is formed a lot smoother. I love that. It's almost like in our more traditional client structures, we often are brought in after a strategy has been agreed upon or decided to make it real and to create an OS that can bring it to life and make it operable. And it sounds like there is a parallel with the agreement is like the strategy. It's like, okay, we've decided the what, and then the new ways of working can be the how that actually bring it to life and make it real. Is that accurate? Yeah, I love the way you put that. I think that's like, if I think workplaces were doing that, it would be just so much better and actually create what people are trying to create when they come together to organize in their workplace. So I kind of want to dig in and and just go straight at it, Denise, and see where this takes us. But as Rodney for sure knows, and you probably know, one of my favorite quotes is a Nietzsche quote, which says, Beware that when fighting monsters, you yourself do not become a monster. For when you gaze long into the abyss, the abyss gazes also into you, which I understand is very heavy for a Friday. But um, but that what that means is basically like, don't accidentally become a mirror image of the thing you're fighting. And my concern about, about sort of the history and the present state of unions is that somewhere along the line, the scale and the bureaucracy and the due collecting and the you know, the leadership and how they get paid and all that has become a little bit of a mirror of the thing that it was originally instantiated to fight. And so I guess I'm curious, A, do you think that's a fair criticism? And then B, are there other criticisms or or things that you think are maybe off base as people begin to argue whether unions are something we need or not? Yeah, I think it's a fair criticism for some unions. I think especially larger unions or ones that are more embedded in in industries that tend towards uh, traditional or you know old ways of working. So they tend to reflect mm-hmm. each other. That that isn't true across the board, of course. But I do, you know, I've been frustrated myself with different points of of bureaucracy in unions. Mm-hmm. I've definitely discussed this with organizers themselves who see a future where we are innovating and less focused on this kind of old old ways of working that's really rooted in more of a traditional setup of work. And I think we're seeing more that that's not, that's not wanted or needed by workers. Um, I also see attention and a reflection of the systems that unions were trying to dismantle in sometimes the way that they pay their workers. So sometimes people who have more power and authority in the unions are paid well, which is great. But then organizers, the people on the ground who may be early in their career may just be more vulnerable to taking a job that has terrible pay or is a short-term contract. And when I see that in unions, I get concerned that they've lost their way a bit. And I wonder about how that's reflected with their locals. I don't think that a lot of the criticisms that unions are always going to um, be bureaucratic or always slow things down 
it's a fact. I think anti-union sentiment is really powerful. It can be pretty subtle, but pervasive. And it can give this idea that protections cause a lack of productivity. And that's where mm. I, I like to step in and, and ask people what, what their real concern is. So if you're worried that people are taking too many breaks, maybe look at why. You know, people, I, a, a phrase I often hear is, well, it's really hard to get rid of the bad people in when it's right. a unionized organization. It's like, and I, yeah. I want to encourage people to question, is it the person? Is it the way the system's designed? Are they in the wrong role? You know, can we design collective agreements so we can deal with serious concerns of things like harassment in the workplace. That's what we're seeing a lot more in collective agreements is they're addressing things like that. They're addressing racial or gender bias. Whereas we didn't see that, you know, 10, 20 years ago in collective agreements, but we're seeing that more now. So so those concerns that people have that if there is a serious problem in the workplace, that a union is going to protect those people, I see a future and I see that currently where the opposite is happening. And there's been great change in that way. It's so funny too, because I find a lot of these criticisms have another reason or another force that's acting that kind of creates that environment. So for example, if you look at like a teacher's union and somebody says, oh, well, you know, we can't get rid of the bad performers because the union has eliminated that. I look at that from a systems lens and think, well, there's no... um, upside for the teachers in the performance of that system, right? If the whole system is humming, if it's doing great, there's no real way to benefit. And so for them, it's just like, how do we get our needs met and protect ourselves? And there's almost no negative consequence for doing that to the nth degree. And in a lot of business systems, it's the same where it's like only the shareholders really benefit from the success of this entity. So so why wouldn't I try to get more breaks? Or why wouldn't I try to get a more exaggerated or, or beneficial policy in place because I don't have any skin in the game. And and in many cases, I think skin in the game and, and an ownership interest in at least outcomes, if not the business itself, can eliminate a lot of that misalignment and then eliminate a lot of those criticisms. Exactly. Yeah. And I think when people are not engaged in creating those agreements or they <laughs> don't see you know, the union is kind of happening at their workplace, they're less inclined to actually think about the system and how they may be influencing it or being influenced by it. But when they're really bought into that, and they understand what it means to be an organized worker, I think that that can change how they interact and what they want to see in their agreements. So Tanisi, for people listening who are curious about some of the inner workings of unions. You know, we're seeing an uptick in unionization in historically non-unionized spaces. So I feel like a primer around this is probably more interesting to more people than it was even three or four years ago. When you talk about creating an agreement, a collective agreement that is going to be brought forward, can you just talk a little bit about what that process looks like? Like, what is the tension? How does it get sparked? Who proposes the thing? How does it get ratified? Like, I'm just curious to hear a little bit more like inside baseball. 
<laughs> yeah. So I'll give the brief overview. And this is from my experience. Every union and unions in different countries um, and different regions do work differently. So if someone's listening to this and it doesn't sound familiar, th- you know, that makes sense. So when I have been involved in the union process, there's been some kind of tension generally around people being worried that they're going to lose their job that their pay is going to be severely cut or their hours going to be severely cut, or they're worried about things like, you know, abuses of power or harassment or being asked to do things that are dangerous or so far outside of their job description, they just can't do it and don't feel comfortable doing so. So usually if you see a company or a, a group of people in a company unionizing They probably have tried other avenues before because it is a really long process a lot of the time. You don't just decide to unionize and then write your collective. It can take months or, you know, up to a year to have the whole process done. So workers may contact a local union. There's usually a lot to choose from. They might go by industry or go through something more general like a public service workers union or food and beverage workers union. And they go for a local that's in their city or in their region and get in touch with an organizer who would then brief them on what it means to be in a union. Erin mentioned things like dues. So they would talk about are there dues? Are they due right away? And that for those of you that are unfamiliar, a due is money you pay into the union in order to be a member. And it is taken usually directly from your pay. So that's something that the union and your employer work out through the collective agreement. So you sign things called union cards. And at this point, the employer cannot interfere. You've declared that you want to join a union and they cannot do anything like come to you and say, hey, maybe we could fix this another way if you give up this Mm. union thing. That's illegal. Um, So it doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but they shouldn't be doing it. Uh, And then it goes to a vote and the workers get a choice. So maybe there's five people out of a 30 person team that first were interested in the union. That doesn't mean they're necessarily going to unionize because more than 50% or different unions have different rules on how many people have to vote. Sometimes it's 60. They have to vote in the union. So once the union is ratified, then you can start with the agreements. And in my experience, the union and the employees present an agreement and the employer presents an agreement. And then you try to meet in the middle. (laughs) I guess the thing I just want to dig into a little bit before we talk about the future of unions and the future of work and like what's what's next, what's the new, I just want to zoom in on the dues thing again. I don't understand (laughs) why this costs money. So can you talk a little bit about that and what you've noticed or experienced? It feels like we all want more. We're going to get together. Why do we have to charge each other money to do that? Yeah, that's a great question. And something that I wondered a lot about when I was first part of a union. (laughs) (laughs) So I asked I'm sure, right? Yeah. And, you know, I was was questioning this because at the time I was not making that much money and I was trying to account for all of it. So I definitely came from the perspective of I support unions, but I want to make sure 
I'm getting, you know, what I'm paying for. So it can pay for some unions do provide things like health insurance and, you know, opportunities to be part of a credit union, you know, without fees, things like counseling services or mental health services. There's a lot of things that employers sometimes don't provide that unions do provide. They also have to pay your organizer that you work with in your local. So that person may work part-time with you. So you're not paying their entire salary, but each union contributes to paying the employees of the union. And those organizers are the people that would come with you when you have a grievance. So if your employer has done something that is outside or against the collective agreement, or you're experiencing something in the workplace that you feel you can't handle without representation or don't want to. Um, Mm -hmm. They can also go towards lawyer fees and anything that may come out of an issue or grievance at the workplace that needs to be pursued. That makes sense. So, Hearing more about the inner workings of this, there's clearly a lot of this that is logical. And it it makes sense that there's this external lever that employees often need to be able to pull to get basic needs met. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we hear and see about companies that are seemingly quite progressive, quite <laughs> pro-worker, the kind of sort of future of work companies that we would otherwise be looking to for inspiration. Gimlet comes to mind as one who recently had quite a bit of a kerfuffle around unionization. And 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 although in a lot of other domains of the OS, there is this um, modern thinking and this progressive collective mindset, when unionization is mentioned, they kind of circle the tents and like totally. it, it becomes just something that gets quashed or gets shut down or, you know, individuals who are bringing it up are are punished in certain ways. I'm just curious, you know, what is your take on that? Like what's going on in situations like that? Yeah, I think that initial reaction makes a lot of sense coming from the employer side, which took me a long time to understand and empathize with. I think that hearing about bad experiences with unions, specifically around how much money negotiations can cost. Mm -hmm. And I was in touch with an organizer out of the Midwest, and he shared some thoughts around that that I think are, are perfect in response to this question. He was saying that he sees a lot of kind of like knee jerk reactions when workers launch a union petition or an election mm-hmm. campaign comes up to join a union because employers spend so much money traditionally in in the negotiations or to avoid unions. They spend a lot of money on not just on lawyers, but people to bust unions and mm. just any kind of things that they can do to prevent workers from unionizing. So if you look at another company that's been in union negotiations for sometimes years and you just see them hemorrhaging money, of you know, it makes sense to have a reaction that you don't want to go through the same thing. You're making me think mm-hmm. of uh, this documentary that was on Netflix in the last couple of years called American Factory, yes. where they essentially, an, you know, an Asian company came into an American small town where there was a factory that was defunct brought it back to life. And over the course of the film, they start to organize for unionization. 
and the and the owners of the factory essentially fight it in every way imaginable as you were describing mm-hmm. and they actually win like the employees mm-hmm. vote against their own quote unquote interest at the end of the film and it really leaves like a big hole in your heart watching it go down this way but but you're right they they throw everything at it and that's for the non-progressive ones and then in mm-hmm. Rodney's case you know even even organizations that are otherwise super progressive are just like eh this sounds like a bad way to get what you want Yeah. And I think there is concerns as well beyond the money that more progressive organizations will not be able to keep, keep progressing or keep adapting and, Mm. and changing Mm. and innovating because of the, the messaging around unions that they're, you know, they're kind of old school and a collective agreement is ironclad for five years. But like I was saying, if we think about what are the working agreements? What are, you know, the, the more human side of things in the way we work together beyond a collective agreement? I think we would see that there is room in a lot of these collective agreements to be innovative and still be protected. Tanisi, it, it does feel like the common criticism around innovation or even like thwarting workers themselves is one that that one hears and reads about. When you think about, you know, the the space there is, the slack there is within those ironclad agreements to sort of pair with new ways of working, what comes to mind? Like, what are some of the ways of working that you think don't impede adaptability and don't and, and you know could sort of make these agreements feel less frightening potentially to employers. Yeah, I I'll speak from some of my personal experience in defining authority and who can make de- the decisions by role and not by person. Yeah. We were able to keep that flexibility. So you could write something in a collective agreement that teams have to meet once a month, or you could say, you know, there is in an agreement I was part of, we said meetings cannot happen or take up more than, you know, 20% of an employee's time. What teams do in those meetings, who calls the meetings, how often they happen was up to the, up to the team leader at the time. So there was enough definition in it that workers felt that they wouldn't be dragged into all team meetings, you know, throughout the month Mm -hmm. without saying you can't make those decisions. So I think particularly around defining authority rather than defining the day-to-day really helped us look at what a more progressive and innovative workplace could look like. We also focused more on the on a few key areas that people were concerned about, which was compensation, parental leave, and hours of work. The hours of work was the trickiest part. This was pre-pandemic, so people were going into the office. And to try to define hours of work for an, a group of people that had various responsibilities was incredibly difficult. And I think where we got to was not perfect in any sense of the word, but it was flexible enough. You know, we ended up, I think, going for hours rather, like amount of hours rather than times you had to be in the office, which was the pre-union policy, was you have to be, you know, in by nine. No one can be in the office after six or something like that. What is 
so exciting to me about what you were just saying is that it speaks to what I think is actually the opportunity for the future of unions with my very amateur lens on it, which is all the foundational agreements that we think of at the ready as the table setting for the operating system of how we're going to work, how we're going to make decisions, how we're going to include people, how we're going to have representation in the steering and the governance of the organization. If that's the focus of the union's efforts is actually to set the table rather than to dig into very specific policies and asks, I actually think it opens up like a whole new chapter of this intersection where there could be union movements going on around the country that are basically just going in and from the inside out, changing organizations into more vibrant, more self-organizing, self-managing places. Yeah, I agree. I see a future where there's a really cooperative relationship between the kind of work we do and unions to really create a world of work that works for everybody and that can be imagined by a lot of different people in a lot of different industries. I really like how you said setting the table, because I think when you have that solid foundation, it's so much easier for workers to imagine themselves as empowered members of their organization. It seems like the how of work becoming the future partnership between organizational design and unionization is a pretty exciting and inspiring place to draw this episode to a close. Tanisi, where can our listeners find out more about you and about your work? Yeah, I encourage you to follow me on Twitter, which is just my name, um, or on LinkedIn, if you use that. And I always welcome people who want to chat more about unions, especially if you maybe have some suspicions about them or hesitancy. I would love to talk to you more and find out, you know, different perspectives because that helps me learn as well. Awesome. Tanisi, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. Thank you. Folks, if you like what you're hearing, if you like us getting into the weeds on unions and every other form of organizing, a review would mean a lot to us. And you can also forward this show to a friend, maybe even a friend in a union. And finally, a quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making us sound good today. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. Get in touch with us by emailing podcast at The Ready. As for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something. And Tanisi, have a very happy birthday. Thank you. (laughs)